Hi, I'm Colin Wright, and this is Renaissance Life. Hey, hey, welcome to the Renaissance Life podcast, a platform dedicated to the pursuit of creativity, mastery, and a meaningful life. I am your podcaster in crime, Josh Wagner. I hope you're happy. I hope you're. I hope you're happy. <laughs> I hope you're happy. I hope you're well. Uh, you can find more inf- information about me and my work at RenaissanceLife.com. That's R-E-N-A-I-S-S-A-N-C-E. RenaissanceLife.com. This week's interview is a conversation with Colin Wright at Colin is my name on Twitter. Colin is the author of. Many fantastic books, including Becoming Who We Need to Be, Some Thoughts About Relationships, and Act Accordingly. He is a speaker, and he is the host of the podcast, Let's Know Things. I had a fantastic time chatting with Colin. He's such a thoughtful and wise person. And when I say thoughtful, I mean it in both ways. He's thoughtful, but he's also full of great thoughts. Um dad joke pun intended. I was super impressed by how articulate he was about his ideas and his viewpoints, particularly, 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 it's hard to say, (laughs) Uh, especially, there we go, I've lost the ability to speak. I was especially impressed by how articulate he was when discussing his ideas and his viewpoints. His work is filled with insights, and he's definitely someone that I admire. You can learn more about Colin by visiting his website, colin.io. And of course, there will be links in the show notes and blah, 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 blah. Quick note before we jump into the interview, this podcast is currently ad-free, free. So it's brought to you by listeners like you, brought to you by listeners like yourself, (laughs) If you want to support the podcast and the Renaissance Life, there are two main ways you can do it. The first way is to financially support us by going to either renaissancelife.com slash support and donating a dollar or two there, buying me a coffee, if you will. Or I have just relaunched my Patreon page, patreon.com slash support. Ren Life, R-E-N-L-I-F-E. If you aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a membership platform that provides help to creators and artists like myself, which helps them earn a monthly income by providing rewards and perks to their subscribers. You can check out my page to see all the perks, but there are actually two that I want to highlight. By becoming a member, you will receive a downloadable action guide That's the best name I've come up with so far for these things. But think of it like a PDF guide to highlight insights and challenges and practical steps from each episode. So basically, I'm taking the notes that I personally put together and spend a lot of time on and distilling it down into a one to two page action guide that has the essential lessons taught by my guest. So, for example, if you became a patron today, you would get access to Colin's action guide, the key insights from this episode, as well as the previous episode from Derek Sivers. Another perk 
by becoming a patron, you get to know who I'm interviewing in advance. So why does that matter? Well, by knowing who I'm interviewing in advance, you can provide me questions that you want me to ask the guest. So it's a more interactive way to be a part of the podcast, and it allows you to ask questions to insightful people that you might not have direct access to. So those are the two perks I want to highlight. My plan is to add a whole bunch more. I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. That was a terrible uh, Godfather impression. Basically, I'm I'm going to double down on Patreon and make it so worthwhile that it's cheap, but it's also super valuable. Where was I? Oh yeah, so the second way... Uh, <laughs> The second way you can support the show is to heading over to the Apple Podcast app and leaving us a quick review. Uh, there'll be a link to that in the show notes, so you can just use your podcast player, go to the show notes, click that link, and then bada boom, bada bing, there you can just give us a star review. You don't even have to write anything, just a star review. It'd be fantastic. That helps us rank better in the Apple Podcast library, which gets us more eyeballs, which enables more guests. Uh, etc etc so you get the idea so a great free way to support the show is to leave a review on apple podcast and i mean after you've left a review why don't you hit that little uh that little uh share button right there and uh share the uh why don't you share it with a friend or two it's no no big deal you know just a little boop 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 and then boop (laughs) last thing don't forget to sign up for my newsletters Uh, they're free considerations and bookaholics you can either find those on substack which is uh the app that i'm testing out right now for the newsletters or uh you can go to renaissancelife.com slash newsletters or just follow the links in the show notes to check those out i also have a paid uh newsletter blah 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 uh you can check that out there too one of the tiers Patreon is you get this newsletter for free if you become a member, blah, 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 blah. You get the idea. Okay, okay, I'm finished. And cue the interview with Colin Wright. Hope you enjoy. just check the settings real quick what was the last movie you've watched what was the last movie i watched (laughs) i feel like this is something i'm gonna oh you know i just watched a documentary today on ronald reagan on hulu oh of all places yeah it was interesting just a documentary done through historical footage very very little commentary yeah it was interesting and basically the point that it was making was that his presidency was the first one to be very distributed and broadcast and shown widely i think like five times as much footage as like the past dozen presidents combined or something like that just super orchestrated too and that was part of this footage part of what it showed very clearly was that everything was very scripted which makes sense him you know having been an actor yeah (laughs) makes a lot of sense sweet and you said that's on hulu yeah uh, the reagan show i think it was called okay i have to check that out okay i think i think we're good to go hey colin welcome to the renaissance thank you for your time today hey 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Would you mind giving a brief uh, intro for people who might not be familiar with you and your work? Yeah. So let's see. When I graduated from university, I went into design work and then segued from there into branding. And I, I spent a little bit of time doing branding work out in L.A., long enough to have a, a decent amount of success within my very narrow niche of that larger field and enough success then to be able to take a step back and realize that the metrics of success that I was using were not really metrics that were vitally important to me. And that in fact, while I was running as fast as I could toward a particular goal my entire life, I actually needed to be on an entirely separate track and maybe be participating in a completely separate event. The goal line that I was getting very close to was not a goal line that I actually wanted to accomplish. So having that realization, I made a hard pivot. I got rid of everything that I owned that wouldn't fit into a carry-on bag. I shifted away from doing full-on branding work, and I decided to start traveling, which was something that I'd always wanted to do. And I thought earning tons of money as a young man would allow me to do that later in life. But I, I realized that there were a lot of benefits to starting to do that sooner rather than later, and that I could probably make it work as I was at, at 24 at that point without going through that process of earning tens of millions of dollars or something like that before I did it. And that's been kind of the tale of the last what decade, almost 11 years at this point. I've been traveling around full time. Part of that time I had people vote on what country I would move to every four months or so. But throughout that entire period, I've been trying to challenge myself and expose myself to new experiences and perspectives and people and ways of living, and then doing all different sorts of work while in transit and while holding still periodically from time to time, from producing podcasts to writing books to writing a blog to giving talks to people on various subjects around the world. Fantastic. Okay, I have like a million questions for you, but <laughs> I'd like to start with Tetris, actually. <laughs> what, what are your, what's your history with Tetris? What are your thoughts on Tetris? I, I actually love Tetris. And it, it's something that I used as an analogy, at times a metaphor, um, for the, my way of looking at things and my way of thinking about the world and work and everything else. And I've used it in so many different contexts over the years that it, it's hard to know uh, which one to settle on. But the, the most literal take on my, my relationship with Tetris is that I got very good at it for a while and got the high score on a bunch <laughs> of arcade machines. But the, the role that it's played in my life and other portions of my life too has been fairly influential in, in that it's, it's fairly rational. You, you have to like find space for things. Sometimes you have to make sacrifices in the way that you play. D did you have a particular facet of, of that larger conversation that you wanted me to talk about? Exactly what you're talking about, like the philosophy around it. Let's see. Oh, oh, masterfulness. And yeah, yeah. And experimenting with establishing handicaps in, in one's pursuit of mastery. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I made an update actually to a post that I wrote about this ages ago on my blog. Uh, back in 2016, I went through all of my old posts and made updates to basically criticize some of the things that I've changed my mind on since and to to add additional context for certain things as well. And That's I, a good idea. I like that. I had written apparently 
a long time ago, maybe in life, unlike in Tetris, every gap needn't be filled. And that was something that mm. I, I really enjoyed from my past self back in my 2016 iteration. And I still kind of enjoy that. I will say, yeah, though, actually, in, in the years since, I've gotten really bad at Tetris, at least when I've played against people <laughs> in arcades. So do not ever challenge me if you see me at an arcade expecting to have any significant challenge. <laughs> it, it reminds me of something else that you've you've talked about, and that's intentionality. What are some experiences or anything that you recommend about living intentionally? Well, that original story that I told at the beginning here about making that hard pivot, that is essentially intentionality through and through. The, the idea being that I was living my life in a particular way, and that's perfectly fine. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But I realized that I and a lot of people move in a particular direction, not because it's right for them, but because they were pointed in that direction at some point in their lives, or they decided at some earlier point in their lives that this was the direction for them and then never challenged that again later in their life after they'd grown or changed or shifted in some way. And so for right. me, making that pivot was an acknowledgement that I hadn't really checked in with myself in a long while. And I hadn't asked the adult 20-something version of myself what a good life was. And the earlier, more somewhat entrepreneurially aggressive version of myself was very into the whole, you know, grow fast and make mistakes and churn right past it. And it doesn't matter. And let's just pursue. And then the growth metric that we're using or the success metric that we're using is money and prestige and making things that people care about. And then, you know, the 24-year-old the version of myself was more like, actually, I'd kind of like to be happy. And, and that seems like a pretty good <laughs> metric. And, and it's strange looking back and thinking I hadn't even considered happiness as a metric of success, but I think it's something that a lot of us gesture at and we say, of course, I want to be happy. Well, how will you become happy? Well, get rich, be professionally successful. When in reality, that might be part of it. You know, there's nothing inherently wrong with money and nothing inherently wrong with uh, professional success. But in a lot of cases, there are other things that we could be doing for ourselves. And in some cases, if we pursue some of those metrics too ardently or with such monofocus that we ignore other things, we can actually move away from the thing that we tell ourselves that we're pursuing. And so doing things intentionally is really just being aware of why you're doing things and then focusing your, your time and attention and energy on the things that actually move you m closer to those goals that you actually have. Wow. That's, I mean, I think that's super important because that's certainly not something that's taught. We're mostly surrounded by the environment of, uh, you can do whatever you want once you get rich or things around that nature. Yeah. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that right. it's flat and in a whole lot of cases, and this is particularly true, part of what helped me realize this about myself was that I looked at my mentors, like the people who I was fortunate to learn about business and things like that from, and I realized that to a person, all of them started out with one dream and one collection of beliefs and philosophies and ideologies. And then eventually at some point, they kind of just forgot about it. And in some cases, they were... Mm -hmm 
realistic with themselves and honest with themselves about that and just said, yeah, I mean, if you're smart, you'll fill your life with more things than just money and business because otherwise you'll be like me and you'll have seven divorces and kids who all hate you and so on and so forth. (laughs) But in some cases, they continued to tell themselves, you know, my actual dream is to one day travel the world or to one day go to space or to one day make art. And here they are in their 70s and 80s and they just never got around to it. And I had absolutely no reason to believe I was any smarter or more capable than these very successful, very well-respected people. So it it made sense to me to make that hard pivot. Unfortunately, though, not everybody has that moment in their life, or they don't have it as early, that moment that catalyzes that thought process. And and I'm not saying that my my way of doing things or my my particular way of responding to that catalyst will be universal. Some people might have that realization and say, no, actually, money is the thing that makes me happier than anything else. I'm totally on the right track. Go me. That's great. If that's the case for you, you are living in the right society and in the right period of time. It was just for me that I that increased perspective helped me look around and realize that I, I was ignoring some really important, really vital facets of who I was and what I wanted to do with my life in order to more aggressively pursue a few metrics that were not non-important, but were not the most important metrics of success to me. Right. I'm curious, after you had this realization, what gave you the, for lack of a better word, uh, gumption to act on it? Oh, honestly, probably a lot of things. Most fundamental, and this is something that I've become increasingly aware of since then, is just that I I am a straight white male living in the United States with a middle class family, a family who loves me and who is wonderful. There's a lot of safety nets that come with just right. being born into certain circumstances. And we've never been rich. Like we've we've gone through some very, very lean periods in my family. But I've never felt particularly unsafe. I've never felt like if everything collapsed around me that I wouldn't have people who would say, hey, you can come crash on my couch for a bit until you get things sorted out. So there's a, there's a lot of privilege that comes with that type of circumstance. So that's a big part of it. Absolutely. Part of it too, though, was just having failed quite a bit <laughs> already up to that point. The, the business that I was running out in LA, my branding studio, that was my third business and the first two, one, one of them failed essentially right out of the gate, and the other one did pretty well, and then failed in a very public fashion after about mm. a year of running it. And, and that was when I was still in school, and it was just devastating. It, just a, a moment that w- was horrible. It made me never want to leave my apartment ever again because it was such a public catastrophe, the way that this thing failed after me getting so cocky about it, that having gone through that and come out the other end and you know deciding I would leave my apartment and I would face people again. And even though I, I let down a bunch of people, including myself, I could go on and I could try again. That sort of realization makes you realize that it's, it's worth trying things. And the worst that can happen in a lot of cases with these sorts of things is not, you know, the world exploding. It's just, you look like an idiot. You learn some valuable lessons. People might look down on you. People might not trust you as much for a while, but you can come back from that. And, and that certainly helped as well. So when you were in your apartment, not wanting to leave, was there anything in particular that gave you the uh, inspiration or the, the, 
the desire to slowly step out of that environment? Yeah, it was partially the recognition that if I wanted to do these sorts of things, if I wanted to make things and, and create useful, valuable things, I, I would need to be able to get past this sort of thing because it wouldn't be, this wouldn't be the first and only time it would happen. There, there was this recognition that this was something I was going to need to callous myself against to a certain degree. And, and that's something that's true whether you're trying to build businesses, whether you're trying to make something that's public facing like a blog or publishing a book. It's also true, and this is something I found out years later, when it comes to public speaking, to a certain degree, every time you go out on stage in front of a group of people, the biggest hurdle to you going out there and doing well is your fear that it's not going to go well or that the audience won't like it. And and being able to get past that just as a reflex and to say, I'm just going to pretend it doesn't matter to me if something goes badly here and I'll deal with the consequences if something does go wrong, but I'll do it later. Because when you go out and you give a talk, if you flub and then you focus on the flub, then everybody notices it. But if you flub and then you personally learn from it, but then don't fixate on it, you just keep going and try to do better. That makes it a better experience for everybody. And it, it the same thing applies, I think, when you're running a business or you're running a blog or whatever else. Whatever you're trying to do, if you can get past yourself and get past your own ego, because to a certain degree, that's what it is that that is smarting so bad and holding you back then it's a much better situation for you and what you're trying to make, but also for the people on the other end of that relationship. Ah, I love that. You mentioned that uh, you were doing branding. When did you know that you wanted to be an author? What inspired you to learn to jump from branding to writing? Or was that already something that you were doing at the same time? No, not at all, actually. I've always been a reader. My first job I got, my first real job I got when I was 14, I had to get a work permit so I could go work at this local indie bookstore. Greatest job in the world if you're somebody like me who then turned around and spent all of his money on books because you get them oh, at yeah. cost. <laughs> that was the best. I got paid essentially nothing, but I got my books at cost. So my my habit was uh, discounted for a while there, which was really lovely. But I, from that point, though, I always considered myself to be a reader, not a writer, because you know I was the person on the receiving end of all of that stuff. And it wasn't until I started up my blog, Exile Lifestyle, the one that I still run today, that I started to think, okay, maybe you can write. But that writing thing was limited psychologically still to just being a writer of blogs. I was not a person who could write books. I was a person who could write blogs. And it wasn't until even further after that when as a as kind of a gimmick really i put together a free ebook to give away in order to try to lure people to my blog and for context i mean this was like really early i mean compared to now at least so blogs were right. still they weren't like new new but they were just a couple years old and ebooks i think the kindle had just come out that year like the very first kindle so ebooks were this weird luxury item. And it was still an interstitial space where we didn't know how to treat these things yet. And they were super highly valued. And so if you could put one together, that was still kind of a big deal. And so I I put together this free ebook, just essentially thinking of it as a collection of blog posts, and then giving it away to people who came to my blog. That did shockingly well. I think at that point when I 
put it out initially, I had like tens of thousands of people reading my blog. And that book got somewhere in the neighborhood of 200,000 downloads in the first three or four months. It was absolutely wow. insane. Now that doesn't say anything about the quality of it. It wasn't very good, but it was a free <laughs> ebook at a time where there weren't many ebooks. And it was still a novelty at that point to give away something like that. It, it wasn't the tried and true thing that everybody does now. It, it was still kind of weird and strange. And so, so the novelty was really what did it uh, above and beyond any quality. But those metrics made me, got me thinking about things. So I made another and gave that away and saw similar results. And then I made kind of a premium version, like something that I put quite a bit more effort into. It was quite a bit longer. It had a lot more what I thought of as just like actionable, valuable takeaways in it. And I sold a version of that second ebook um, that I upgraded in that way. And I, I didn't make a fortune, but I made enough money that I thought, well, maybe, maybe if I like really, really worked at this and really put some effort into it and learned all of the things that I don't know, then maybe I could actually make a go of this. And at that point, I was already both practically and psychologically on my way out of LA. I, I was already planning to start travel. I don't think I knew exactly where I was going to go quite yet, but I was already on my way out the door and I thought, wouldn't it be marvelous if I didn't have to have clients because traveling around, Wi-Fi is going to become an issue. Time zones will become an issue. And, and I didn't want to put my clients through that, but I also didn't want to put myself through that because I wanted to be in the places where I was not visiting a place, but then having all of my work and communication taking place with people in the Pacific time zone. So that was something that I invested more time in. And by the time, let's see, by the time I was finished with New Zealand, which was my second country, so about eight months, uh, probably eight to 10 months after that, I was making enough off of a couple of books that I'd published and that I had up for sale that I was able to replace my my very most basic fundamental operating costs, my my costs of living in the countries that I ended up in. So not not the plane tickets and stuff, but the operating day-to-day -day costs in these places I was able to cover with book revenue, which was a, a surprise to me more than anybody else. That's awesome. I'm curious about the specific things, ideas, practices that have improved your writing over the years. Yeah, the biggest one, the the biggest, best piece of advice that I can give to people with writing is just to do it all the time, every single day. No, no excuses. I meet so many people who no doubt would make great writers if they actually wrote and their dream is to write. <laughs> but when it's your dream, then it becomes this really intimidating thing, I think. And a lot of people have a version of this where they write, but then they don't show anybody that writing. And therefore, they don't tend to grow as quickly because they don't get that external uh, perspective that shows them how, how their writing might be received on the other side, which is very valuable information. But even before that, I know a lot of people who are just so intimidated by the act of it and so worried that they'll be bad at it, that they don't do it. And the, the unfortunate thing is that probably if you want to write and you don't write, you will be bad at it. I mean, even if you think you have a knack for it or somebody at some point told you that you're good, yeah, you won't be good compared to what you could be. And the thing that gets you to where you could be, the slow but steady erosion that whittles away the parts that don't matter and sharpens the, the portion of your writing that is distinctly you, that is just you doing it all day, every day, or not all day, every day, doing it every single day as much as you can stomach. And then 
being intentional about it sometimes, but then kind of passive about it sometimes. So giving yourself the opportunity to write, quote unquote, badly, to just do it casually and to practice in kind of a shooting hoops type of way, but then also to do sprints and drills and to look back at stuff that you've written and say, oh, this is good. This is bad. I should do more of this. I should do less of this. That combined with taking some of the writing that you already do in your day-to-day life, writing emails and text messages and captions on your Instagram photos, whatever, looking at those things as opportunities to hone your craft as well is an opportunity that I think a lot of us miss because it doesn't seem like serious writing. Well, it could be. I mean, you can you can write a book and say, this is my voice writing a book, but you could also write a text message and say, this is what I sound like in a shorter format, a shorter, more casual format. What does that look like? How can I get better at that? And at some point, the two ends of the spectrum in terms of casualness and professionalism and in terms of different types of lengths and uh, media types, those things will combine into something that is really holistically you. And being able to be vehicle agnostic, being able to apply this skill set to any type of media, any type of delivery vehicle, any type of context, opens up a lot of opportunities for you because then it's not just books that you're writing. It's maybe books, it's maybe blog posts, it's emails, it's fortune cookies, it's two hour long talks that you can present to people, it's, it's podcasts. It can be absolutely anything that you want. And so basically being, being intentional with it, but bare minimum, just writing is a very good idea. And then allowing yourself to be very broad in your definition of what writing is, is also something that I think can be helpful. That's super powerful. The part about dreaming big, I've definitely experienced that having a dream and in your mind, it becomes something so large that you're almost paralyzed or, or you just can't do anything about it because you just, I guess, because you just don't want to fail, really. You don't want to look bad. For me, I've probably stolen this from someone, but for me, like doing things like the tiniest amount has been super helpful. Mm, Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just opening up the door. Yeah, just opening up the door. Reminds me of that movie with Bill Murray. What about Bob? (laughs) Like (laughs) Baby Steps? (laughs) Baby Steps, exactly. And something else that helps too, especially if you're a perfectionist, which I know a lot of people, uh, or at least I hear from a lot of people who want to write for whom that's an issue where their perfectionism gets in the way. It's not a bad trait to have, but it does uh, up the intensity of that intimidation. And if you can go into writing and with many other things that you're trying to learn and aim for like 80 or 85% of what you can do instead of 100, that's also something that it's kind of a pressure valve on the exercise so that you don't feel like every single sentence has to be perfect before you can move on. Just aim for like 85%. That's, that's great. And then you can chisel away at that over time. Yeah, I like that. It's like lowering the stakes, basically. That's good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In one of your recent books, Act Accordingly, you have a fantastic line. I think I think it might be the first sentence in the book that is, quote, you have exactly one life to live in which to do everything you will ever do, act accordingly, end quote. Would you mind speaking more about this philosophy and how you use it in your life? Yeah. So... You, you had mentioned earlier that there's what gives somebody the almost bravado, I would say. That's a good word for to it, make yeah. some To make some of these dramatic choices. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, no problem. Like what gives somebody that type of gusto or bravado or shamelessness to a certain degree, because that at times is what it is, 
to to make these kinds of life changes or choices or to invest themselves in certain projects or whatever. And for me, part of what made the decision fairly easy back in my LA days, but also when I've made many dramatic, fairly dramatic for me, at least pivots since then, has been recognizing that life is finite and I could choose to view this as a great big risk, but then I could look at the other side of that risk. And this is what we tend not to acknowledge, that the the opposite is me spending the one life that I have. Like I don't get a second time around, no matter what video games tell me. The one time that I have to try my hand at this thing called life, I could spend it doing something that I don't care about or doing something that doesn't make me happy or doesn't challenge me, doesn't help me grow. I could spend that time doing something very safe that nonetheless is not fulfilling. And realizing that, realizing that the the opposite of doing this fairly risky thing was not safety, but complacency, that was something that helped me take those steps despite being terrified out of my mind that everything was going to go sideways and I would have to crawl back to LA and beg all of my old clients to take me back and rebuild everything that I'd worked so hard to build. (laughs) Speaking of your projects today, you've got some newsletter publications, you have a podcast, Let's Know Things, blog, books. You have a quite um, an amazing number of projects going on at once. I'm curious, how, how do you balance your time between each of them? How do you decide what to focus on? Yeah, fairly carefully, actually. I'm, I'm very selfish with my time. I built my life the way that I did in part because I wanted to be able to, on a whim, say, hey, there's a cheap plane ticket to New Zealand, and then hop on that plane the next day if I wanted to. Or in a in a different direction, but the same theme, to be able to just wake up in the morning and say, I really just want to read a book today, and then spend the entire day just reading a book. And to be able to get away with that, to have a life that allows me to have that type of flexibility, and to be able to focus my time appropriately. And and what that means in practice, for me at least, not having been born independently wealthy or anything like that, it means one, being careful with my finances, but it also means introducing new things in terms of projects and responsibilities into my life very carefully. And so a lot of these things start out as kind of test balloons. They start out as little experimental projects that I define what I'd like to do with it. And then I set a deadline. And at that point in the future, usually it's a month or maybe three or four months, depending on the scope of the project and, and how long I think it'll take for me to, to learn something about it, learn if it's successful and learn if it's something that's valuable to me and other people. And if it's something that's sustainable within the way that I set up my life within that period, I I basically try to flesh it out. I try to figure out which parts require certain amounts of conscious attention and when figure out which things I can batch process and do all at once and which things need to be done in the moment, which things take up my time in a way that's not super conducive for the way that I'd like to live my life and which things I can um, hack away at and break apart and systematize in some way. And so all of the things that I do today, with few exceptions, there's a few things that are still experiments right now, but most of the things that I do right now are things that went through that process and I figured out ways that I could implement them and continue to implement them over time that were useful to me, useful to the people on the other side of that communication or exchange, and were things that I could set up in such a way that 
they wouldn't take me away from that ability to to live a flexible, variable life as I wanted to. So that that process, it's a, it's a little bit sprawling in a way because I've always got things that I'm experimenting with and then I've always got a collection of things that I've built into the structure of the way that I'm living currently. It works pretty well once you get into the rhythm of that, I think. And and so for me, despite the fact that there's there's quite a few things that go out each month or each week even in terms of output, they're all things that don't add a substantial, let's see, cognitive load is not right for it because they, they do require quite a bit of that. But they, they don't they don't drain any of the other priorities that I have in my life that are not directly work-related, if that makes sense. And they're all fulfilling, so that makes sense too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, they're all things that I enjoy and they're all things that help me grow in different ways as well. And anytime okay. I find myself with a project, even if it's something that's moderately profitable or valuable in some other way, if it's no longer something that pushes me, then I tend to drop that or segue away from it and introduce something else and use that time for something more valuable. I'd like to dive a little deeper into specifics related to this. What's your process around researching a topic you find interesting? For example, on your podcast, Let's Know Things, there's a recent episode that was on athleisure, which I really liked. How did you go about learning and discovering things about that? So Let's Know Things is predicated on being able to explore the context around a topic that's being discussed in current events or pop culture or just on the front page of the news that week. And I try to keep it fairly topical without trying to be a breaking news type of thing. I don't break news and I'm not I'm not a, like a real journalist either. I don't do original reporting. I, I do analysis. And, and so a lot of the research around that is finding a topic that is being discussed quite a bit, but usually being discussed quite superficially. And not because the people doing the discussing are incapable, it's because the mediums in which they work typically don't allow them to go more than skin deep, which is totally okay. There's a market for that. But I I tend to like to understand things in a more holistic sense, seeing where the stuff being discussed on the front page of the news today connects with history, connects with economics, connects with technology, connects with business, connects with philosophy and art and everything else. Trying to draw as many lines between all of these different things as possible so that I understand them better and how they fit with other things, but also so that I can then hopefully explain those connections to other people as well. So the beginning of that process typically is just looking out into the world and figuring out what's being discussed. And then either looking at something where the conversation is very superficial, and I think I can do a decent job of, of trying to show some of those threads, uh, or something that I just completely don't understand. And it seems important, but I don't know how quite yet. A, a recent example of that is uh, what's called SPACs, a Special Purpose Acquisition Company, which has just been all over financial news recently. And I very, very superficially understood what these things were. It was some kind of alternative way of going public. But I didn't understand like how it was an alternative and why people would choose that and why it's happening now and how these things evolved and have they been around for a while and I just didn't know about it. Has this uh, acronym been just not been used in the past? I couldn't figure it out. And so that ended up being an episode. I think that was a, a special Patreon episode, actually, now that I think about it. But the research for that started out reading 
some of the typical people who I read in the financial section, following the links to the research papers typically or the other writers that they reference in their work, and then usually finding some kind of index, like a glossary type of source like Wikipedia, which at, at times can be a good fundamental source when you're starting out, but typically it's most valuable to show you some keywords to start with and to give you some references to other stuff that's more authoritative and more uh, a little bit better fact-checked. So with that type of topic, then I'll have this array of maybe a dozen places to start. I'll go through all of those things and read them to try to figure out a, a broad picture view of what that subject matter happens to be, to try to understand it fundamentally. And then I will, from each of those sources, go out to usually somewhere between five to a dozen other sources to find out about more specific topics that underpin that topic that I'd like to discuss. And then sometimes at that point, I realize that the real story, the real thing worth the discussing as an episode is something else entirely. I think it's this one thing, it ends up being this other thing, and then I can try to tell that story in such a way that it takes people from what's being discussed in the news back to this more important thing. Regardless of which direction it ends up going and what the topic ends up being, typically I end up with a bunch of new sources, a, an understanding of a field that I didn't have before, and then that gives me jumping off points to other things that I can use as specifics, either to tell stories to help draw people in to the subject, or just a collection of random facts that I think are interesting that then I can compile together into a bigger picture. Super cool. Yeah, I really like your podcast. It scratches my curiosity, if you will. Also, you also have a great like calming voice, which is a plus. <laughs> Thank you. I, I get emails sometimes from people telling me that they turn on my podcast to fall asleep at night, which, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm glad for that. I'm glad it's a value add. Yeah, I think that's a good sign. <laughs> Related to sources, I've been thinking a lot recently about consuming compared to creating and balancing the two. Do you have any rules around consuming media? Not any hard set rules. Nothing nothing that I've taken and mapped out and formalized in, in a way that I would recommend it for anybody else. I, I do tend to... I guess you could just broadly call it consume. I tend to consume different types of things in different ways at different times. And when it comes to news-related consumption in particular, I, I tend to have like a period right in the morning where I take 30 to 60 minutes to go through a collection of different sources that I've compiled over the years Just that, that tend to give me a, a pretty broad overview of what's happening in the world that day or the past week. And then I'll do it again sometime like later in the late afternoon or early evening. But, but I tend to do that in a perusy sort of way where I go through to, to see if I understand what's going on. And then I click through and save links for other things to read in more depth later if there's something that requires more active attention for that. But beyond that, I, I don't have like a, a scale where I need to produce a certain amount or consume a certain amount. I think both are important. And I think you can work both into your day or into your week, even if you if you have one day where you do nothing but watch movies and read books and read the news, and then the next day you've taken some time to think about all of that stuff and you produce something. I I think that's perfectly fine. Just as mixing the two and blending them throughout the day is perfectly fine. To change topics a little bit, w would you mind talking about your philosophy around owning things? Yeah. So intentionality. It, it kind of comes back to intentionality again. The 
measurement that I tend to use is, is this something that's actually valuable? Or is this something that I find appealing for some other reason? And having worked in branding, I know that there's a a lot of very smart, very well-paid people working around the clock to try to convince me that I need things. And I get why they do it. They're not bad people. They're just people who have this job that requires that they very cleverly figure out ways to to brand and market things so that I will find them appealing. And just like even knowing about those things and knowing all the tricks that they use and, and having a separate project called Brain Lenses in which I talk about some of the variables and filters and psychological witchery that can be used for these same purposes, even knowing about that stuff, it doesn't prevent it from happening. So there's still things that I sit and like crave, like, oh, I really... I think I need that thing. I think I want that new thing. And I have to kind of cool myself down a bit so that I don't just go out and impulse buy uh, a million different things. But fortunately, at this point, having, having done this for quite a long time, I can usually bring things back around to functionality. And, and will this actually serve me? Can I imagine myself a week after this thing arrives at my doorstep in an Amazon box? Can I imagine myself actually using it? Or... Can I imagine myself purchasing this thing and then having it sit on a shelf or sit on a desk somewhere or sit in the bookcase, a book not being read? There, there's so many things that I bought in my life that end up in that second case where I spend resources on them, which, you know, if you trace it back far enough, is me spending my time and energy, my time especially, that I can never get more of on this thing that then just sits there. And it sits there on my shelf, not being used by me, but also then not being used by anybody else. It could have gone to somebody else instead who might actually have some real value for it or some real practical use for it. So I tend to try to pull myself away from that kind of blood rage style desire to to buy things that, (laughs) that marketers are so good at revving us up into. They can get us into that state very, very easily. I try to cool that down and bring myself away from that precipice anytime I find myself craving something. And then eventually, though, if I think about it long enough and I can actually say, you know, that thing, though, would fulfill this role in my life and it would allow me to do this better, then I eventually allow myself to to buy it and to to bring it into my life. But it it feels like a big commitment at that point after you've thought about it a bit and you've actually consciously, rationally assessed it rather than just emotionally responding to the concept of maybe acquiring something. And, and then the the same is often true in terms of getting rid of things. I often find myself with artifacts of a past version of myself taking up my space, things that were valuable to me once, but then because my needs and wants and everything else have changed in you know year after year, but also in some cases day by day, that thing is just not useful to me anymore. And at that point, I can take a look at it and say, is this just occupying space, literally or figuratively in some cases, in the case of digital goods, is this just taking up space in my life? Could it go to somebody else instead who might actually use it? And am I adding like a a psychological and physical burden to my life by having this thing in it rather than getting rid of it? And by going through those processes, typically, I find myself more often than not able to avoid consuming stuff that I don't need to begin with, but then also fairly fairly quickly getting rid of things and handing them off to other people when those things no longer serve me. 
It's not a perfect thing, though. And even people who know a whole lot about this and have a whole lot of practice with it, and even people who live out of a bag in some cases, and you know, for every new thing that they acquire, it's literally a weight on their shoulders. It's something that dramatically inconveniences them. Even in those circumstances, you can still fall prey to this because we are just primed to acquire in so many different ways. So if, if it's not something that works for you right away, basically be, be gentle with yourself. You mentioned the psychology nature of it. I've been thinking a lot about the the things that we don't use that are surrounding us that are just like drip, 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 constant reminders telling us that we need to pick up the book that we haven't read or do this project that we haven't done. All those like taxing mental, physical things that we surround ourselves with. Mm, yeah. It, and that's that's kind of how they they become detritus in a way, don't they? They they accumulate over time and even the smallest things become, you know, again, a physical burden in the sense that you're literally paying rent for stuff that just sits in your space. You are paying real <laughs> estate costs to store stuff that you don't use. So it's a, it's a burden in that way, but it does become a psychological burden as well. And in some cases, it's because we're beating ourselves up for not reading that book. We're using that cool instrument that we bought or that cool tool that we bought thinking it will encourage us to learn to play guitar or learn to cook or whatever else, but also because we might beat ourselves up over having fallen prey to this again. I bought that thing. I bought those shoes. I'm never gonna wear those shoes. Why did I buy those shoes? But they're really nice shoes. I should want these. I should be able to use these. I spent so much money on them and it becomes a sunk costs sort of thinking where yeah. because we spent so much time and energy on these things or, or money on these things, we then sit with them because we don't want to admit that we made a bad choice or that we, we wasted money. And something that I try to remind myself of in those circumstances is that it's not wasted money. You just paid for something that now taught you to be more careful next time. Absolutely. You probably have like countless travel stories, but I'm curious, what's one silly travel experience you've had? <laughs> oh God, where to even start? I, oh, let's see. So when I was living in India, I was living in Calcutta and I ended up in a Bollywood commercial for, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This commercial for, like, I didn't even know what it was for at the time. There were just so few people who, who spoke enough English to, to tell me what was going on. I apparently was for a TV station that was trying to look international. And so they were rounding up all of the foreigners <laughs> in Calcutta to be in this commercial. And so they piled us into the back of this truck and took us out to this place called Nico Park, which is like a knockoff Disneyland. And they have like the, the off-brand Mickey Mouse and off-brand Power Rangers. And it's crazy. Apparently, it's, it was a safety nightmare, too. I think their water slide collapsed like two years oh, after no. I visited or something. But we were there at night and there were mosquitoes everywhere and it was monsoon season. So there was like periodically we had to step under these shelters to get away from the torrential downpours that lasted for five minutes. But they, they dressed me up as a, they first tried to dress me up as a Michael Jackson. And, and I say a Michael Jackson, because ultimately there were two Michael Jacksons, but I couldn't fit in the tiny little pants, the tiny little leather pants that they had. That was like, they were like doll pants. I, I couldn't fit. And so eventually they dressed me as a cowboy. And I, so I was able to wear my own, own jeans for that, which was nice. 
but we we learned these elaborate dance moves and it was me and the two Michael Jacksons and like a genie and a Mayan princess and a couple of Power Rangers. There was like a Lawrence of Arabia sort of character. And then we were dancing <laughs> in front of like an, a fire breathing animatronic flower. And like it, it was just the most, the craziest, most dramatic over the top, very unsafe sort of shooting situation that I could possibly imagine. And I was devoured by mosquitoes while I was out there and they paid me 40 bucks. I think, I think the payment for it was $40, but it was like 17 hours that I will never forget because it was so random, so over the top, so uncomfortable, so silly, so like shoddily done. It felt like, but apparently it, it, turned out okay. The, the person who found me and drove me out and recruited me for this thing said that it, it turned out okay. But I was never never able to find the finished commercial online. I, I have no idea what happened to it, but I did find a photo blog later of somebody else who was recruited for it. And it's just as nutso as I remember in person. That sounds insane. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's wow. super random, but you kind of, <laughs> something that a lot of people do, and that I definitely do this. When you travel, you say yes to more things because you're already you're you're looking for some novelty and some new ways of looking at things and it's very very easy to fall into a rhythm of just saying no because everything that you're going to do is uncomfortable it's it's uncomfortable to leave your home or your hotel or whatever because nobody speaks languages that you're comfortable with typically all the food is unfamiliar you don't know any of the brands you don't recognize things reflexively so everything takes a whole lot more cognitive energy than it typically would and that's very exhausting just psychologically and emotionally so you you kind of have to go into these sorts of things with an agreement with yourself that even if you're feeling tired even if you're not feeling like it you will typically if it seems safe and if it's not a, a like a horrible situation of some kind, you'll say yes. And, and this was one of those circumstances for me. And, I, and I'm glad that I said yes, even though in the moment it was just really draining. And I was so, we left at like six the next morning. It was an overnight, just hours upon hours of work sort of thing. But it, it was also great. And especially in retrospect, it was great because it was so weird. Yeah, good story too. Uh, I'm curious your thoughts on luck. Do you think it's possible to improve your chances of being lucky by doing, you know, X, Y, Z or whatever? I think you can stack the deck for serendipity. I, I think you can hmm. make it more likely that when you draw a card, it will be a card that you like because you've you've gone through and stacked the deck to a certain degree. I also, though, think that that deck is on a regular basis reshuffled by somebody who you don't know. And so you have no control necessarily over what card is drawn next. Stacking the deck though, you do that by becoming better at building relationships and communicating with people, acquiring skills, acquiring assets. Uh, there, there's all different sorts of things that you can do to invest in yourself and invest in your overall infrastructure, I guess you could call it. But that doesn't guarantee anything. And, and I think a lot of the cards that are in that deck too are put there just by chance. Like there, there's a certain element of luck that because of where you were born and the circumstances under which you were born, because of different random things that nobody could have predicted that happened throughout your life, there, there's so many things like that that you cannot control for no matter what. So all you can really do is 
try to become malleable and flexible so that you can roll with the punches and bounce back when bad things do happen, but also being able to, or trying to at least stack the deck whenever possible to make it more likely that things will go your way more of the time. You mentioned relationships. How do you personally go about building and cultivating a thriving community of creative friends around you? Very carefully. And, okay. and also in, in a, very flexibly too, especially when you travel a lot, a lot of the relationships that you have will not be conventional. And that's true. Business relationships, friendships, romantic relationships, everything. And it's really important within the context of all of those relationships that you get comfortable allowing them to be what they're going to be based on those circumstances and grade them on or grade them according to metrics that make sense for what they are, as opposed to trying to turn them into something else, because that something else is something that you're more comfortable with. So a, a lot of my, my best friends live all around the world, and it's very unlikely that I'll ever have them all in one place at one time. And if I tried to judge those relationships by conventional friendships that, that most people have, they would suck. They would be unsuccessful friendships. But according to the standards that we've built, me and each of these people on the, the other end of these relationships, and they're all different, but according to those individual unique metrics of success, we figure out what the other person needs and we figure out what we need and we figure out what we're getting out of it and what they're getting out of it. And we make sure that everybody's getting what they need from the circumstance. And as long as you can be attentive to that, and adjust things as necessary as, as the people involved change and as the circumstances change, then you can still build really successful relationships of any kind. It just it does require that you are capable of and willing to change your definition of these things from time to time, or, or in some cases on a very regular basis. What advice would you give to somebody pursuing creative work like yourself? Maybe somebody who's starting out or somebody who's been at it I've been in the trenches for a while. Oh, I'd say be very broad with any labels that you use for yourself. And try to avoid labels whenever you can. That, that's a good rule of thumb just for life. But try to avoid boxing yourself in. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying about writing. If you just say, I am an author, therefore I write books, you limit yourself in so many ways that don't make sense based on your skill set and what you could be doing. Whereas if you say, I'm a writer, that opens you up to different types of writing. But then you could also say, I'm a communicator, which then allows you to do writing. So you could use words to communicate, but you could also be a visual communicator. You could become a graphic designer or a fine artist. You could be a performance artist. You can communicate in that way. And the, the broader you can make these labels, or again, if you can eschew them completely, the more you open yourself up to try new things and to feel comfortable with that without boxing yourself in and saying, no, that's not my wheelhouse. That's not something I'm capable of doing. And, and I say that because consistently, the things that I find myself doing for a living are things that I told myself a couple years back that I couldn't do because it wasn't something that I did. And then as soon mm -hmm. as I allowed myself to accept that maybe I could, or bare minimum, maybe I should just try it to see if I could, then then I found myself enjoying it. And in some cases, enjoying it so much that I end up doing it professionally, but in some cases, just enjoying it as a hobby and something that then supplements the professional work that I do in my life. If you could master three skills instantly, what would they be and why? Ooh, <sighs> there's just so many. 
that I'd love to be able to <laughs> yeah. do. I, I've always <laughs> wanted to, to be, yeah, I, I've always wanted to be like a, okay, actually, so I don't know if I'd call them skills, broad bodies of knowledge associated with skills, maybe. I always thought it would be very useful to be like a lawyer, to have a very deep and practical understanding of the law seems like a very, very mm, useful Again, I don't know if you'd call it a skill, but very useful professional knowledge to have. Same with science. I love science. I appreciate it. I deeply research and analyze it, and I understand it more than most people, but I'm not a scientist. I, I could not do science in the way that people who are actually scientists can do. I think it would be very interesting, but also fulfilling on multiple levels to have that deeper knowledge and to be able to then conduct science in the way that people who are, you know, working at CERN or whatever are able to conduct science. Right. I also think universal translation of some kind. Oh, that's good. And, and I, I say that very broadly, intentionally, in terms of like languages that we speak, but also in terms of being able to then translate desire or will into like computer language, being able to code, being able to develop, being able to engineer even to a certain degree. I think translation very broadly is a very, or, or maybe being able to, to be like a philosopher's stone, the universal alchemist for all types of whatever into something else. That would be very useful. I'm just, I'm, I'm really playing with this now and just taking all I can get. <laughs> so being able to just convert things into other things, including language, but also knowledge, including communication, including points of view. I want all of that. I love that. That's fantastic. I'm going to steal that one. That's, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like one of those genie in the bottle, like, wishing for more wishes kind of answer, but that's, that's my kind of answer. Yeah. yeah. You know, the trick is to wish for more genies. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I stole that from a comic somewhere. <laughs> Actually, your list is very poignant, but I was, I was going to ask you if you had any other recommended meta skills that would be useful to learn, like writing, for example. Yeah. So writing is a big one. I would say communication in general, Yeah, learning how to talk to people. It's, it's a surprisingly vital skill on so many levels in just about anything that you might do, but just the fundamentals of holding a conversation, like ju just the basics, being able to ask people questions and be genuinely interested in what they say, being able to keep up the rhythm of a conversation. There, there's a lot of little tactical things with that, like looking people in the eye, but not too much and facing people, but not too much. Like there, there's a lot of details you can get into with that, but basically just going into a conversation and being able to keep up your end of a conversation is very, learning how to learn is important. That's a huge meta skill that applies to every other skill that you could possibly learn. Uh, and that's going to be different for every single person. So maybe I should really say learning how you learn mm. best is, is an important medicine. Increasingly, and, and this one is, I'm less certain of this one than the other ones, but increasingly I'm becoming convinced that learning how to build tools and automation, and, and that's true in the case of like physical engineering and being able to build yourself an axe, you immediately increase the number of things that you're able to do physically, but also being able to learn how to code it. It, it sounds really trite, I know, and it sounds really trendy, but I think learning the, just the core concepts behind learning how to develop 
even if you don't choose to learn C or to learn to do front-end stuff or to learn Python or something more specific, just learning how these things work and then learning how to think in that abstract way and that systemic way that's very often required to learn any type of language of that kind allows you to understand a whole lot of what's happening in the world around you today. And I see a distinct difference in the people in my life who don't know even the barest basics of that and how they respond to tech to technology, but also the way society is evolving in general. And being able to understand the underpinnings of that is kind of the equivalent of being able to understand the the printing press or maybe even written language during the like the Renaissance and leading into the Industrial Revolution. I think it's that type of pivotal concept that it's important to understand at least abstractly. Absolutely. I think we're on the same wavelength because I've been relearning the fundamentals of math and programming, actually. Mm. Have you heard of the book Code? It's a little bit older book, but it's Code, the Hidden Language of Computer Hardware and Software. No, I don't know that one. It's a fantastic read. It goes from basic you and your neighborhood friend learning Morse code with flashlights all the way up to, you know, assembly language and how computers fundamentally work. It's It gets pretty heavy uh, at times, but it's a fantastic read. That's great. Yeah. And those, those metaphors too, I think are super valuable. Just that, that's what I'm talking about. Being able to then take a basic conception of what's going on and then scale it up so that even if you don't understand how exactly it is that it's abstracting away these different layers of things, you understand fundamentally what's happening so that it doesn't seem like magic. Yeah. Who, who inspires you or what inspires you, but who inspires and influences your work? You know, pretty much everyone. It sounds like a non-answer, but I I tend to find a whole lot less, mm, I don't know if I want to say less inspiration, less influence okay. in people who like write books and do big things and who are well-known. Like Their stuff is cool, but I've never wanted to be another XYZ person, you know, yeah. there's already a Seth Godin. We don't need another Seth Godin, for instance, like, you know, and you can always, there's a lot of people who try to, to mimic or look at these people and direct insight and instruction from the way that they did things. I, I tend to think we're all so unique and we have such a unique assemblage of ingredients that go into our personalities and capabilities and lives that it doesn't really make sense to do that typically. And so for me, I like just the randomest people that I meet along the way, people whose names I never even get because they they helped me figure out what thing to buy at a grocery store in a foreign country this one time. Like just the way that they handle themselves, the way that they interact with the stranger, the stories that I sometimes hear as a consequence. There's just so many little interactions like that that tend to be in aggregate, at least, a lot more influential on me than, than any particular person or thought leader or influencer or whatnot. That's great. You do a lot of experimentations. You mentioned some of them uh, previously. I'm curious if you have, if you if you can point to one that's been the most impactful so far. Oh, I mean, they're all impactful in in so many different ways, and some of them have been longer lasting, and thus the the consequences have been impactful. Like deciding to travel, that was a huge thing. Deciding to start my own my first business back before that, that was a big thing. More recently, though, just in the last couple of years, learning how to cook was a big deal. That was something that was just truly intimidating to me on a level that I can't even describe for most of my life. I, I could burn water trying to boil it. I was so bad at cooking. <laughs> and, but then I decided I'm going to experiment with it. I 
found myself changing my lifestyle habits intentionally for a bit. I decided to, to live in the U.S. for a year, and then it ended up being two years. I lived in Wichita, Kansas for a year, and then in uh, Memphis, Tennessee for a year. And I thought, well, what do I do while I'm in these places? So I I brought in a couple of experiments, a couple of new things I wanted to learn. So I learned to finally, after at that point, it would have been like 15 years playing guitar. I learned how to sight read music and I learned how to play the piano. And then I learned how to cook. And the way that I did it initially was getting several different books and several different online resources and watching YouTube videos for every minute detail. Like, how do you cut an onion? Okay, look for a YouTube <laughs> video on that. How do you hold a knife while cutting an onion? It, it got really super granular, but I I would only eat things that I had prepared myself was the goal. That's a good rule of thumb. I started on that immediately. So those first few weeks were pretty grim. Um, <laughs> but, but there's nothing like eating really terrible food. Just boiled water. Yeah, exactly. I got better at that, fortunately. But there's nothing like eating really bad food for a while that incentivizes <laughs> you to put in the time to learn. And and that is just it. perhaps even another, uh, I don't know if it's a meta skill, but it's it's a fundamental skill that will bear a whole lot of fruit. It, it pays dividends throughout your entire life. And it's one of the joys of my day, typically, is just having the time and taking the time to cook, to prepare my own food. It's it takes something that is otherwise very passive and neutral and kind of beige in your life. And it makes it just astoundingly valuable and official and happy sing. So those sorts of things, I, I have a lot of those in my life that are relatively mundane things, relatively mundane experiments by most people's standards. A lot of people grow up cooking. So to them, it's not revelatory to learn how to bake bread. But for me, being able to look back and distinctly remember being intimidated by, you know, turning on the oven and then being able to bake traditional French bread myself from scratch using four ingredients. Like that was something that uh, life changing yeah. in a way for me. So some of these experiments, they don't have to be dramatic or even cool sounding to anybody else to be really positive in your own life. It, it was the same for me too. I grew up on like boxed macaroni and Pillsbury rolls. So when mm -hmm. I first learned to cook, to cook many years later, it improved pretty much everything in my life because it made me more aware of what health is and why you should should pursue health in a big way. Mm. And having more control over right. it, I think it's true with any aspect of your life. But having more control over fundamental things like that, then it has an amplifying effect for other things that you do. Because at, at the same time, I was already working out pretty consistently and intentionally, but it, it added other aspects to my health focus as well. Because suddenly, I had the ability to tweak things in my eating habits that I did not have the ability to tweak before. And so it made it a more holistic thing that I could suddenly, that I had more command over. Do you remember the first uh, meal that you made that was like great or like you gave yourself a thumbs up? Or the first song that you learned on piano? <laughs> Let's see. The first thing, the first thing that I cooked actually was it's it's hard to even call it a recipe now by by my modern standards. But it was essentially like making rice and then mixing salsa and beans into that rice and then covering it with cheese and green onions and then baking it like it great. was a casserole. But it was like it, was, it, it actually I made it once before just more recently just to see if my tastes had changed. It still tastes great. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's a, like a super smooth that anybody can make. But uh, to me, that was this like extraordinary feat at the time. But then 
mere months after that, I was making, you know, some really good risotto and, and things that are a little bit more in, intensive in terms of what you have to do with it. So it, it doesn't discount how impactful those early things can be, though. The fact that you move on to things that are more impactful and iterative. Uh, what, did, what did I learn on the piano? I, I, it was mostly classical music, mm-hmm. so a lot of the stuff that I was learning, the the titles were not super memorable. Yeah, yeah Nocturne, that's how it is. What is it? Nocturne and Nocturne and G, Nocturne and B. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Uh, I don't remember the artist. Um... Yeah, the, it's the you know it's the one that's at the end of like the the middling skill range <laughs> books uh, when you're learning piano. That that's where cool. I got. Uh, have you changed your perspective on anything recently? That's kind of a broad question, but <sighs> yeah, let's see. What might I have changed my perspective on? I'm trying to think, because it probably would have been something fairly mundane. Yeah, so recently, I've been going through the process. I So I came back to the U.S. to intending to visit my parents for a couple of weeks right before the pandemic hit. And mm. the the goal was to come visit them and then to start look for a, looking for a new place to live, to have a home base here in the United States. And I was intending to do that relatively quickly. But now, you know, half a year later, I'm still at the beginning stages of all of this for perhaps obvious reasons. Right. But the the idea was to buy a cheap place, like a cheap house somewhere, and then fix it up and to use that as an opportunity to learn a bunch of skills that I don't currently have revolving around doing electrical work and plumbing and basic oh, repairs cool. and gardening and things like that. And so that was a shift. And then within that shift, though, I've had another shift where I also realized that there's certain things that I could do in like a townhouse or a condo that I would not be able to do, to do in a house and the same vice versa. So my my thinking has shifted both in the idea that it might be valuable to have like an anchor location somewhere that is mine that I could have and I could use as a home base and then figure out what travel looks like from that home base. It would be quite different from what I've done in the past. But then also within that thinking, trying to figure out what kind of place that might be, both to serve my needs and to to be a place that I actually want to be, but also to be a place that then is a good jumping off point so that I can continue to travel once that becomes a, a safe thing to do again. And to not accidentally, you know, build myself a tomb or something that I just work <laughs> myself up in forever. Right. Uh, I like that. That's a, that's a good idea. Um, I, I have like a few more general questions and then uh, some final questions. I know we're running mm-hmm. on an hour-ish right now. Are there any books that you reread or catch yourself thinking about often? I don't reread a lot of books. I read a lot of books, and the reason that I don't reread them is that I always have new books that I want to read. Yeah, there, there's been a whole lot that have been impactful for different reasons over the years, but yeah, no, there's a couple that I've picked up back in the day to reread again. Like, there's a couple actually. <laughs> so philosophically, back in the day, I read um, like Atlas Shrugged and Fountainhead and Ayn Rand books, and I read them in a completely different way than I realized later. A lot of people read them. <laughs> the, the whole objectivity or objectivism rather uh, philosophy and the th- that angle of libertarian ideology which yeah, to each their own for me I read them in a completely different way and so I went back to read them again later like 10 years after I initially read them and I'm like oh yeah actually wow I don't think I would want to meet Ayn Rand if she was still alive <laughs> <laughs> because I had read it in a more kind of broic way and really a, a, a lot of people who 
took it in the way I think it was intended, took away very different things from those books than I did. So in some cases, I'll go back and do that when I read something and then realize that everybody else has a very different impression of things than I did. But uh, otherwise, typically not. And I, I kind of on um, Goodreads, and I have been for several years now, of books that I've read so that I can go back and and recommend books to people because typically the book that's in my mind is the last one that I read. And the other stuff by that point has generally been incorporated into my broader thinking already. So it's not something that I'm sitting and, and thinking about. It's it's something where I have to figure out where I had those ideas come from in the first place right. when, I, when I go back to reference it. Do you read any uh, fiction? Tons of fiction. Cool. Yeah, probably more fiction than nonfiction. Oh, really? Cool. Any uh, favorites that stand out? Oh, I mean, same story. I could probably, let me see. There's There's been a few really good ones recently that I read that are just beautiful and poetic. Let me see if I can pull up Goodreads here. I'm a big fan of like Brandon Sanderson and Patrick Rothfuss and those kind of. Yeah, yeah, Rothfuss is great. What did I, There's there was one that I read recently that was, um, a lexicon was a lot of fun. That was more, it was definitely very fun and interesting by uh, Max Berry. I haven't checked that one out yet. There was one called, I think it was something like, This is How You Lose the Time War. I saw that. It looked really interesting. It's fun. It's quirky and poetic. I'm going to feel really bad of that. Yeah, This is How You Lose the Time War by uh, Amal El Motar, I believe is the name of the author. Just beautiful and poetic. The language used was gorgeous. The storyline is... It breaks all conventions. There's a lot of fiction that you read, and it's fine, and it's fun, but it's very um, prototypical, or, or adheres to certain archetypes for certain stories. It broke all the archetypes, so there, there wasn't really anything that I could compare it to, which was a lot of fun when you discover something like that. But th- those sorts of things. I enjoy a good romp. I, I read a whole lot of science fiction, but really all types of fiction. And anything that's good and has a good story and good characters and some original ideas, I tend to enjoy. But things that are completely off kilter in that way that make me look at storytelling and language and character development in a different way. I really enjoy those. Yeah. I'm a sucker for time travel. So I'm going to have to check out the time war book. That's why I like Patrick Rothfuss and Brandon Sanderson their ability to create worlds and characters are, it's just incredible. What did, what did Sanderson write? He has some great series. One that I really like is called Mistborn. And then mm-hmm. he's got a, I think he's, I think there's four books right now. There's either four or five books uh, in the Stormlight archives. Those are fantastic too. Um, both are, both are in mm-hmm. fantasy settings, but the, the mechanisms that he's created are so unique and the characters are fantastic. So highly recommend those. You'll have to check those out. Are there any questions that you think about often? Yeah. I mean, I think mostly in questions, I think. (laughs) Basically, at a very fundamental level, a lot of my work revolves around trying trying to find all the connections between all the things. And basically, you can take any concept and trace it back and back and back and back. And I think you can do that to an unlimited degree, but then at a certain point, the questions that you're asking are about literally everything. And so figuring out how to how to explore that and how to communicate about that, but also then how to think about things at that level without being so intimidating or just in the weeds, like how to be how to not be boring about it so that people can think at this level that encompasses more 
and goes beyond immediate concerns and superficial knowledge of things, but that is not in its substance because of the way that it's shaped and because of how sprawling it is, something that is then completely unwieldy in terms of figuring out how we see the world, the way that we make laws and governments and economies and stuff. How, how do we, we take these unwieldy things and make them wieldable in such a way that they're practical? Yeah, I'm that way with um, references in the back of books. Like it's just, it's the best worst thing because it's so, so <laughs> many good books after you just read this. If you like the book, it's like, fantastic book and then there's like 30 other books which also have references and just all it's all turtles down mm -hmm. Fil filtering out all the uh the noise to get to the signal yeah. is difficult these days but also difficult is the fact that there's so much signal it's it makes it difficult to process things and to do it in an orderly way so that you don't get that sense that you're missing out on so much so what's even the point of looking at the little narrow fields that you can spend your time on at any given moment is there anything that you wish you had learned five, 10 years ago? I, I wish I would have learned to cook sooner. That's definitely something, again, that's paid such dividends. It's added so much to my life that uh, I feel like, you know, that I would have benefited from it. Uh, then again, at the same time, I, I tend not to really, regrets aren't super useful yeah. beyond learning from things that go sideways. So for me, I wouldn't change anything. I'm happy with where I am and are and where they went. But if, if I had to choose some adjustment to the timeline to make, I probably would have learned to cook sooner. In one word, how would your, or how would a best friend describe you? Hmm. I mean, probably some permutation of the word strange. <laughs> <laughs> Because a lot of a lot of what I do and the way that I live and the way that about things is very unusual, I think is the generous way of saying it. But uh, I, people can be forgiven for just landing on strange or weird or <laughs> oddly shaped if you use a hyphen as one word, I think. So yeah, something along those lines, I probably think I think is probably fair. Uh, when you're in a car or a shower or on a walk alone, what songs do you sing? Hmm. Oh, it really depends on what I've been listening to. I have fairly eclectic tastes in that regard. And I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to listen to new stuff too that's outside of comfortable genres and outside of cultural influences that I'm familiar with. So I have a bunch of stuff. I mean, if, if it's just me and it's, if it's stuff that I tool around with on the guitar or something, it's like Mountain Goats, that, that style of kind of folksy rock. That's a good band. But uh, typically when, I mean, if I'm, traveling around or something or singing in the car. It's probably something that I've heard recently. And and honestly, because of the nature of show tunes, there's a decent chance it might be a show tune just because those <laughs> things stick in your head yeah. <laughs> and are very difficult to dislodge. True. Uh, anything new you've been digging recently? Music-wise? Okay, Let me that's pull fine. up my Spotify here and see if there's anything I added recently that might be worth noting. Uh, Arlo Parks. Really enjoy... Okay. Maya Hawks, Kyle Kraft heard a song by him that I really liked. They, these are all, I'm just randomly listing <laughs> of, the names of artists that I've added recently to a playlist. So uh, I do not recommend necessarily absolutely everything by these, these artists. And I don't necessarily know a whole lot about them above and beyond a couple of songs I've listened to. But yeah, in, in general, like I, I use a lot of algorithmic recommendations to kind of randomly expose myself to stuff like hype machine and, and the playlist that Spotify makes and things like that. But then also I make it a practice 
kind of like when I learn a fact or, or hear about something that I don't know about where I immediately go and, and try to Wikipedia it. When I hear about something from anyone, if somebody cares enough to recommend something, I'll typically go and listen to something from that artist just out of pure curiosity and also the chance that it might expose me to something that ends up being my favorite thing. I worry about any algorithm because <laughs> they do have blind spots and they do, you know, it's only as good as the the biases that go into it and the pool of stuff that they're pulling from. But all things considered, especially for finding stuff that is likely to be similar to stuff that I, I've liked and listened to in the past, it's pretty good. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, okay, final three questions. First off, is there anybody that you would recommend that I should reach out to to interview next? You know, something that might be interesting, and this this goes back to me and just where I tend to find inspiration, find a random person who hasn't done anything that would typically uh, get them interviewed on a podcast and interview them. I like that a lot. That's a great idea. Like, I think you'll be surprised by the depth of the conversation. And and that's true, I'm going to say, of just about anybody you could talk to. And it might take more pulling to, to get the stories out and to get the insights out because they might not be as accustomed to doing interviews uh, as people who have public-facing work. But I, I feel pretty certain it would be worthwhile. Cool. I'm going to do that. And then what's one question you would recommend someone take away and ask themselves? It could be a question related to what we've been talking about or not, but what's one question, mm. one takeaway question? Why am I doing this? And, and I think asking yourself that regularly in different contexts, it tends, to shen, it tends to shine a light on a lot of what we do and tends to help us discover more frequently when we're doing something that doesn't actually align with what we'd like to be doing. That's great. Last one, what's one action you would want to recommend, an action step or a challenge for someone to do after listening to this? Mm. Take uh, time. I'm not going to say how much time because I, I think it's smart to start with a little bit of time, but take some amount of time each day and do absolutely nothing. Like start with a minute because it's actually very difficult if you've never done it before. It can just be agonizing to sit with yourself and your own thoughts <laughs> and your own bodily processes because we're so used to being distracted and entertained or productive. But one of the most productive things you could do in my estimation is to sit quietly and just be in your own head and don't, don't chant or do alms or do breath work. Like you can do that stuff too, but do it separately. Like literally just sit there and be in your own head and allow your mind to go wherever it goes and allow your breathing to do whatever it does and sit or lay down however you want, but just literally do nothing. No tapping your fingers, even nothing. And you might be surprised with how comfortable you can get being with yourself and not being constantly entertained, but also where your mind goes. And that, that might tell you some things that otherwise you wouldn't recognize. Nice. Fantastic. Colin, thanks for chatting with me today. Appreciate your time. It's my absolute pleasure. Great talking to you. Anything you want to plug before we close up? Oh, I mean, if you're interested in seeing some of what I'm working on, you can go to colin.io and I'm at Colin is my name on most of the social networks if you want to say hello. And I'll have all that in the show notes as well. Sweet. Good deal. Yeah, my pleasure. Nice talking to you. Those were uh, fun questions. Well, thanks. Right. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Colin Wright as much as I did. 
quick reminder, everything will be in the show notes, including the books and various things that we talked about, including links to Colin's work. Last thing, if you want to support the Renaissance, if you want to support what I do, you can financially support us by donating a buck or two at renaissancelife.com slash support. Or I just launched the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Ren Life, R-E-N-L-I-F-E. And you can find out more information there, including the perks that you'd get for becoming a member. For example, if you want to download the actionable guide from this episode, you can get that by becoming a patron. And if you do that, I am immensely grateful. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of the Renaissance. Keep creating, keep pursuing, and until next time. Would you mind just throwing down a quick table beat if you, on your closest table or your mic or whatever you got, a table whatever you can. Beat. It's just a. Yeah. Table beat of the week. I appreciate it. That is super random. I'm very curious what you use that for. (laughs)